Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for another weekly Talk and Footy episode. Episode 8 in the 2023 season of Talk and Footy. And it is an episode that is very much Dragon specific. We do have Hook finally sacked and all the repercussions from that. That's going to be a big storyline that we're going to talk about. But to do that, uh, I got somebody in for the first time about a month ago, and that was Marty Jones. Marty is a avid lifelong Dragons fan, always has his ear to the ground on the Dragons news and things, and I thought it would be pretty apt to get him on for this one to chat again with the Dragons now that Griffin is actually gone. So, Marty, welcome back aboard, mate. It should be a, uh, a good chat of footy today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's actually the third podcast I've been on, Mark, and I'll point out that every single time you get me on, coincidence or not, the Dragons are playing the Roosters. So I do <laughs> wonder whether there's just a little bit of a chance to have a crack at a team that you know you're probably going to beat. So I'm a bit sceptical now. Oh, that must be You're right, actually, because we did, uh, leading up to the Anzac Day Clash, we did a podcast. Yeah. And uh, we also did the Dragon Supercoach preview. So mm-hmm. it is the second talk and footy podcast, but you have been on a Supercoach podcast as well. Yep. So excellent. Well, look, we first have to get all the housekeeping out of the way for everyone listening. If you want to listen to the episodes, these are the talk and footy ones. We talk everything rugby league from an unbiased view, just saying how it is from a fan's perspective and have rotating guests on to have a bit of a chat about that. So several good topics. We've also got a few that come up every week. Listener's Corner, great question from one of the listeners each week that we go through. Barnsley Spray of the Week, where I go absolutely livid about something stupid in rugby league. And Legend Rewind, where we focus on a legend of the past and have a bit of a quick chat about their career and what we remember from them. So a few things to look forward to, but if you like your Supercoach, grab the Supercoach episodes. We do the Supercoach TLT every Tuesday, and they drop on a Wednesday early. And then we also have the Talking footy like this always drops before the round kicks off on a Thursday night, so you can get some footy into you. So other thing that we need to mention is the great partner of the All-Stars podcast, which is Picklebet. Picklebet's a recent partner of the All-Stars podcast, and I'm really happy to have them on board. They are a bookie that I think are really coming into their own with their marketing and stuff. has been great. Some of their ads are awesome with their uh, takes on NRL 360 and their parody and satire that they do. It's fantastic. But they've also got some fantastic odds. So if you like to have a punt, Make sure you do it responsibly, but go and check out Picklebet because anyone that likes to have a punt knows that you want the best odds and you shop around for them. You need to have some some bookies like Picklebet up your sleeve and be signed up to them to have a go at that because sometimes they have some of the best odds in the market, uh, better than some of the big boys have, and you can have a look and have a go on them. But if you do, make sure when you sign up, you use the referral code, ALLSTARS, or all one word. And if you use that referral code, they'll know that you're a podcast listener from here and they'll take great care of you. But we also have a special each week, right? So the NRL All-Stars podcast has its own special on Picklebet every week where we pick out a same-game multi, and you can find that under specials on Picklebet. This week's special, Marty's going to love it. We have the Roosters minus 5.5 points and James Tedesco to score any time for $3.50 odds. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's juicy. I really like that one, yeah. uh, but I'm obviously a Roosters fan. But I tell you what, you know, win by six plus, that's still a tight game, right? Like, uh, of course, they can win by six plus and it's a good game. And, and Teddy's due a try for sure. So I reckon that's pretty good at $3.50 on Picklebet. So jump on picklebet.com, have a look. 
uh, but also make sure that you use the referral code if you are going to sign up, which is all stars, so they know that you're one of our listeners, like I mentioned. Make sure you think, is this a bet that you really want to place for free and confidential support? You can call 1-800-858-858 or visit gamblinghelponline.org.au. Marty, round 11 review. It was a review that I didn't want to do. Um, do we start off with my team? No, we don't because we've got the Storm and the Broncos first. Thank God. So <laughs> Storm 24, Broncos 16. I think we could, I think going into this, there was a few really key matchups in round 11. And one of them was, I, I, I do notice that Broncos fans seem fairly aggrieved that they're not, I guess there's a little asterisk with them being at the top of the ladder, but I think genuinely it's generally it's pretty, respectful of their spot up the top. I just think that they haven't really been up there for multiple seasons or anything. So, you know, when they come up against a side like the Storm, the Storm are favourites, even though they weren't, you know, as high on the ladder as what the Broncos were. But it was definitely a, a prove yourself for the Broncos. How good are you going to go against the Storm in Amy Park? I thought the Storm were very good. Um, it was a game that was marred by controversy, which we'll talk about in a minute and put to the side. But just on the football side, the Storm were 24-16 winners. There was some controversy in it, but, you know, the Broncos didn't score again until the 77th minute, and I didn't think that was a try either, so there's that. So it was reasonably comprehensive by the Storm, uh, and I think the Storm would be pretty happy with that and how they're building in the season, whereas the Broncos starting to hit some of these harder games like the Melbourne Storm at Amy Park, and they're not getting across the line against those teams. Yeah, look, I thought it was a really good game. I enjoyed it. Um, The two teams don't like each other. And that always makes for fun viewing. Um, I mean, Olam versus Stags is worth the price of admission every time those guys come up against each other. It's like a who's the biggest meat axe comp when those guys go up against one another. Um, the Storm was at home. I expected them to win, and they did. Um, full credit to the Broncos. Um, in previous seasons, if they'd lost Reynolds, that probably would have been a 20-point loss. Um, but they toughed it out, and um, I thought they played really well. Um, gutsy effort by them. Um, you look at the scoreline, 24-16, um, 10 all at halftime. The only thing I would point out about that um, is that I think it kind of flattered them a bit because there were two tries that, in my opinion, shouldn't have been allowed, and then Katoa dropped the ball over the line. So, I mean, realistically, that could have been a, a 30-10 to 10 scoreline, which probably was a little bit true after the, the way the game was played. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the Broncos good. They got... You know, Carrigan and Haas gives them huge amounts of go forward, but one thing's clear, if you control Haas, you go a long way to controlling the Broncos pack. They still struggle a bit through the spine. The hooker rotation's working for them, um, but they, they don't have a gun at hooker, and they've got a young bloke at 5'8", and they've got a brilliantly talented fullback who's kind of sort of settling into the team. So they, I, they're off to a great start. They've got some very hard matches coming up in the not-too-distant future, though. So I, I think they're, they're, they're nowhere near the kind of Panthers-Rabbits level. Um, but, I mean, let's face it, if you're a Broncos supporter, you'll be cheering at that start. Yeah, you would be. And, look, you know, you'd also be cheering at some of the performances. You mentioned Payne Haas and Carrigan. They both played exceptional. Um, Carrigan... 26 carries, one offload, 43 tackles. But Payne Haas had arguably one of the best games of his career. He had three offloads, a line break, eight tackle breaks, 30 tackles with no misses, no errors, no penalties. And he ran for 243 metres. It was a a phenomenal effort, especially when you consider the Storm are one of those sides that you know their middle is going to be pretty tough. 
and they do have some big bodies there and they do have some very experienced bodies there. And Bellamy does try and pride himself, I think, on that middle forward pack that he has. Um, so limiting metres is certainly something that the Storm have always had in their blueprint for a long time and also limiting the effectiveness of some of the big middle forwards. And they were going after Payne Haas in that game. Like they were really going for him and he was relishing it. Uh, and I just thought, you know, there was a there was certainly pockets of time, Marty, where they, they kept Payne quiet um, for a little period, but then he just sort of barnstormed in and just, you know, ripped them apart a couple of times. I, I thought it was sensational and for him to, to get through that workload and have that effectiveness, like with eight tackle breaks and three offloads and a line breaking into that storm middle. Oh, I thought he was the best player on the field for the Broncos by far. Yeah, I, one of the commentators, I can't remember who it was, at one stage drew a parallel between him and Glenn Lazarus and said, you know, in a, in a season or two, you know, Haas will probably overtake Lazarus as the best prop he'd ever seen. And I thought, you're off your face, mate. If you can't realise right now that the world has never seen a prop like Payne Haas before, you're mad. You know, those 243 metres plus all the attacking stats, um, that that in itself was amazing. But 75 of those were post-contact metres. And he sucks in three defenders every time and just keeps charging up the field. And he creates a lot of quick play the balls. He creates a lot of space. And then defensively, he almost never misses a tackle. And he can play 80 minutes. And he can probably play 80 minutes every game of the season. And at the end of the year, he'd actually still have enough energy left to play good finals. Um, I've never seen a football football play like that before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's got a long, uh, he's still got a long career ahead of him to to get past Lazarus for me. Uh, but at the same time, he is his own. He definitely is his own. I couldn't compare him to anyone at the moment with how he plays mm. and the mix of size and athleticism and motor. Yeah, is uh, yeah, he's pretty crazy. But he is definitely a freak. Uh, but he couldn't carry them to victory, obviously. And losing Reynolds was a key talking point in this game. The other key talking points, you know, there was uh, atrocious referee decisions mm-hmm. is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. It was just both, it needs to be said that both the referee, Todd Smith, and also the bunker, the lead bunker, both got demoted for round 12. And it's uh, it's definitely accountability there at least. So well done the NRL for actually recognising it. Yeah. But, I mean, I know Broncos fans will go on about the Carrigan tackle, and they should. You know, that was a sin bin where Carrigan got taken off the field for 10 minutes, which is going to be brutal for any team, and we've spoken about that in past podcasts. But in this one against the Storm, made it really hard for them. And then afterwards, the match review committee said he didn't have anything to answer for, and then the NRL said it was actually the wrong call. So it's just one of those things where it just puts a spotlight on the hip drop tackles again and sending guys to the bin when it wasn't even a penalty offence. And it's just, it's really starting to grate on people. Like on the back, off the back of this, like they won't say it's specifically related, Marty, but off the back of this game and what happened with Carrigan and having to admit they got it wrong, they've released a new video uh, to tell people what a hip drop tackle is and the indicators and what they actually look for. It is good. It is interesting. But it's after round 11, like we're almost halfway through a season and you're still feeling your way out on how you're going to call this stuff and your own referees, let alone the bunker that can watch 30 replays during this Broncos match, got it wrong. You know, like, did you really actually just send that out for the fans or did you actually do this video for your own refs and stuff to teach them that they shouldn't be making calls like this? You know, it's, I, I, I try not to be sceptical of it, but... it's stuff like that that does really ruin a good contest and Broncos fans should feel aggrieved, right? They had Carrigan gone for 10. There was another 10 in the bin incident, which we'll talk about in a minute, but Carrigan gone for 10, 
and also Adam Reynolds gone. It makes it bloody hard against the Storm in Navy Park. Yeah, I mean, the hip drop was silly. Um, it's great that they've made a video. I haven't actually seen that video. But at the end of the day, I'm not the person that needs to see it. The bunker needs to see it. You know, they're the guys that rule on this, and there's just so much inconsistency. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was bad. But I was more concerned with, you know, Farnworth's penalty try. I mean, in slow motion, you could clearly see the defender trying to reach around and get the ball, you know. And it's like we've discussed before, it's reached a point now where as a defender, if, if you find yourself in a certain position on the field, you actually aren't allowed to tackle, you aren't allowed to try to get the ball, you actually just may as well put your hands on your head and go, okay, you may as well score, mate, you know, so I thought that was bad. And then the one where they, um, where Pake scored the try, I mean, you know, yep, the, the contact... I, was, I can't believe Moore wasn't spoken about that. Like, I t- that was... Yeah, I mean, the contact was initiated by the marker, which is something I hate, but it's something that happens probably three tackles in every set um but then the marker was clearly held and pakes ran through the hole that exactly would have been defended by that marker i mean at the time it was just so clearly a no try and it was awarded and and so yeah bronco supporters yeah there there were decisions there that they could be aggrieved about but i've got to tell you the storm have their fair share of things to be aggrieved about as well i just thought it was an awful i don't complain too much about the rest i don't see any value in it but um that game was just so bad across the park for both teams. It was very frustrating to watch as a supporter. Yeah, and like both teams, I thought, played well. Like you said, it was a, it was a good game to watch at times. I think both teams actually played good football. It wasn't the team's faults. It was, um, yeah, the the way that it was refereed. That Farnworth one, I actually thought, it, I do think that's a penalty. And I do think that they've called that pretty consistently. If you put your hands on someone, it's going to be. But, you know, again, like we talk about going to extremes in, in the NRL and they just keep doing it and doing it. Like one of the extremes that we're speaking about on the podcast before is going from a penalty to a sin bin, which is a big call. And now we've got this thing where we're going from a professional foul to a penalty try so easily. You know, we've had a couple of weeks in a row where we've given penalty tries and they're not penalty tries. Like th- there's a fair bit to do there for Farnworth to actually put that ball down before it goes over the dead ball line. There was no way that you can say, oh, it was an easy try. He was going to, you're definitely going to score it. And like last week, just to give another example that's sort of similar, uh, or sorry, yeah, in Magic Round, you had Matt Burton uh, pass off to, I can't recall, the Bulldogs player, and they got a penalty try when they were 10 metres out because a defender put um, hands on them and there was no one in front of them. But yeah. it was a bouncing ball going again towards the, the dead ball line and a defender was close enough next to him to actually push him over. You know, he, he was 10 metres out from the line. It's just, you can't call penalty tries in these situations. And I don't no. understand. No, well, penalty tries always used to be scenarios where there was 100% clear that the try was going to be scored. In that particular situation, I thought the penalty was 50-50, and I think the penalty try was 10 to 1 against. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, you know, famous example that you'll remember. I'm sorry to bring it up, but... Jamie Ainsco, uh, grand final, you know, oh, against God the Storm. You know, he, you know, you've got you've got a player that's caught the ball and they've been hit in the head, and the only reason they didn't fall on the ground scoring the try was because they got hit in the head. You know, that, that, that's that's sort of a clear definition of a penalty try, right? But when you've got a ball that could easily go over the dead ball line before you actually get to it or it's bouncing everywhere, and you've got defenders there, like, you know, they might not be in front of you, but they're right beside you and you've got a fair way to run. It's just It just seems like garbage to me. Um, there was some pretty bad calls against the Broncos, but there were some equally bad ones against the Storm. I'll, I'll reiterate what you said. That marker one, I was fuming. I actually thought it was one of the worst calls, and it didn't get much of a mention in the post-match or from the NRL or anything. 
But Flegler and Penne, right? They've been going at it all game. Okay, Penne tackles Flegler. And he's got, to me, you know, and I look, I've had people argue with me on Twitter about this and on social media. I've, I've watched it. I watched it a hundred times that, that night because I was that filthy about it. Penne has his arm, uh, has his hand on Flegler, exactly like almost every single tackle, like you said. Now, whether he's saying stuff or whatever, he wasn't pushing him over. He wasn't grabbing him. He, he's had his hand on the marker, right? And then Flegler has grabbed him with both arms and Penne has obviously reacted, and you can actually see Penne trying to shake him off. And he's trying to shake him off because he can see that the Broncos have just gone through the back of him, and he needs to stop a try. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he obviously gets into it with Flegler and says, "Stuff you," and they, they they get into it because they were a couple of times during the game. It's it was that cut and dried. I don't even know how. It, like it didn't even seem like it was reviewed. I don't want to go on and on about it, but there was bad calls both ways. Um, they threw Todd Smith in the bin this week and said, you're not refing a game. We should probably do the same with the game and <laughs> move on, Marty, I guess. Yep. Yep. Uh, Bulldogs 12, uh, Warriors 24. Uh, look, I think with this one, the Warriors were all over it in the first half. Um, they actually scored three tries in the first half to the Bulldogs, none. And the Bulldogs attack looked like it just really deserted them. Um, and that's... That's going to be an issue for them, but they do have uh, players like the Fox coming back this week, which I think is going to help. Karaz just had his first game back, which will help them a little bit as well. Uh, but the Warriors keep just going on, and um, I don't want to concentrate on this one too much because I do want to get to the next one because it was the most shocking. I think a lot of people picked the Warriors to beat the Dogs, and you know the Warriors are now in the top eight as well, an eighth spot. So they deserve a lot of credit for that. But my Roosters, I thought we would get done pretty easily, Marty. I wasn't going to bet on the Roosters winning, but 48 to four, it was about as bad as what I could, what I could have expected. Uh, the Panthers just ran rampant like right from the ninth minute. The Roosters didn't score until the 64th minute and we we're already down a million. Um, it was already, already like 30 nil at that point. It was just one of those things where when you're running bad, you're running bad. And that's sort of, I was talking about it after the game and I just felt really deflated. And I was like, you know, we played Penrith, Arguably the best team in the comp. You expect to lose, you know, more than likely. It was at Penrith Stadium. But we just seemed to be playing terrible for a lot of different reasons. And then we just have this awful luck. Like, to lose Joey Manu to that injury um, was bad. But, you know, the same pre-game, we get told that Sam Walker's done his knee. (laughs) So he can't even come in for Joey Manu the following week. And guys like Corey Allen and Jackson Paulo, like, really, to me, are getting exposed. And I made the comment on the Supercoach podcast, you know, even during this telecast and even afterwards when you watch NRL 360 and stuff, media and analysts are going on about the Roosters should be better with this um, star-studded lineup. They've got the best team on paper, blah, blah, blah. They, they, they've got a chance. At pre-game, they said, oh, they've got a bit of a chance against the Panthers. Oh, I don't know what they're looking at because, oh, you know, Corey Allen is not a first grader at all. And Corey Allen and Paulo, I, I thought, weren't very good. And, you know, you know, Billy Smith played well. It's second game of first grade this year. It's not a star-studded lineup at the moment. And then you take Joey Manu out of it, Marty, and you can kind of see why they lost 48-4, to really. Yeah, well, I mean, the Roosters are just very disjointed. Um, when Sammy Walker got dropped, both you and I were surprised. And I, I mentioned to you at the time, I mean, you know, Manu's a fabulous player, but he he runs. You know, he doesn't set up any of outside backs. And, I mean, when you're playing 5'8 or halfback, you know, you need that structure 
Um, and the last couple of games, I've thought that they they were unstructured before that, but they just completely fell apart in structure in the last couple of games. They're still conceding massive meters up the middle. They couldn't stop the offloads. Um, and every time the Panthers went left, there were holes. So I think the the thing that needs to happen moving forward when they're back back from injury, Walker has to go back to halfback. Um, you have to put Manu in the centers um, with Smith and you need to move Suwali'i back to the wing because Suwali'i is, is just not a center. He's got the skills to be there, but I'm not quite sure where his head's at. And the best thing about Suwali'i is when everything else is going wrong, he just puts his head down and he charges. Like that's that's the best thing he has going for him is these incredibly aggressive hit-ups. At wing, you can make 20 hit-ups and you can get in the game um, and so if you're a bit down on confidence because you're running so much, you've got the ball in your hand so much, you know, things sort of start to work for you. Um, playing at centre, he's just not getting any good ball and he doesn't seem to know what to do with it. Um, and as you point out, the, the, the Panthers are really good. You know, they're slowly getting back to their best. They started the season badly, but they are turning that around. And, you know, if you're a little bit off your game, teams like the, like the Panthers, they, they can put 40 points on you, whereas if you're a little bit off the game, the Dragons might only be able to put 20 on you, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's not terminal for the Roosters, but I have to say it's um, getting to the point now where I think the fans should, probably should be expecting a little bit more than they're getting. Yeah, I just think that there's too many guys in there that aren't first graders myself as a Roosters fan. Um, having no Manu and Walker is really going to hurt. But I'll, I'll give you a big stat from this one, the one that sticks out the most. Panthers made 309 tackles this game. Bruce has made 446. That is 50% more tackles than what your opposition had to make. That is insane. And I've said it in previous weeks, uh, you know, like when people have had a little bit of a dig at Tedesco or different things, it's like they just haven't had the ball. Like if if you've got 69% possession and you're making 446 tackles to, to 309, one, you don't have the ball enough. And two, your team is just, by the time you do actually get any position at all in a game, and you saw it in this one, but you've seen it most of the year, you're too tired. Like they've got nothing left in the tank. And you throw in that sort of defense and then the odd sin bin that they seem to get, um, which we won't talk about because they didn't get one this week at least. It just, it's taken too much out of them. And then they don't have the talent in their side at the moment to be able to overcome that. In prior years, I think we did. Yeah, well, don't forget though, they conceded eight tries. So when you have eight tries scored against you, that's eight times, you know, you've got to kick the ball off to the opposition. Mm. And they also made 12 errors. So that's technically 20 times right there that you're going to lose the ball. So if, you, if you're wondering why the, the possession count was so bad and the tackle, tackle count was so high, you know, part of that is actually sort of because of the scoreboard and the mistakes. Yeah, and, and a lot of the mistakes were being made by Fords as well. Um, which doesn't go unnoticed yeah. too. Like, and it's guys that are just buggered. Like they're, they're tired from tackling. And they're not paying any attention to detail as well. And it's it's hard to watch at times. Um, I think that they, the Roosters, more than any team at the moment, need guys hitting their straps and need guys healthy. They can't afford any more injuries. But more importantly, they are a team now that needs to start well. They cannot start badly because it's just taking too much out of them and they just don't have it anymore at the moment with what they've got on the field. Uh, I need to pinpoint a couple of players here. The scary thing for me as a Roosters fan was that Nathan Cleary was pretty quiet. He hadn't, he didn't have a try assist in the game, and they still won forty eight to four. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, like I'm not a Jerome Luai fan um, as much as Summer. I don't think that he should be the New South Wales six, for example. That doesn't mean I don't think he's a great player. He is. He's a very good player. But 
this game was easily the best of his, his year for sure. Um, he ended up with two line breaks, a try, two tries, his two line breakers, his 11 tackle breaks, and he didn't miss any tackles. And, you know, that's that's a quintessential primetime Jerome Luai performance. So we say that Cleary didn't have a big game, but this is the first time this year that I think Jerome Luai had a phenomenal performance. And, you know, it was probably right around the right time too with New South Wales selections around the corner. Yeah, well, I think Cleary, yeah, Cleary's stats were quite strange when you look at it. You look at the scoreboard and, you know, from a super coach perspective, Cleary's on 150, you know, and that just didn't happen. But looking at the game, what happened very early is they realised that they could exploit the Roosters' right edge defence. And so by the time they went left a couple of times early and had success, and then they flooded the middle and had success, they were just constantly going up the middle, heading to the right post and then putting plays on to the left. Um, and there was just so much space between the defenders, which is something I've seen the Roosters do a lot this year. There's something wrong with their defensive spacing. You look at two guys, I'll be standing right next to each other, and then there'll be like a, a nine-metre gap to the next bloke. And it's just like if you guys look at the offensive team coming towards you, you can see that the wing is on the, on the touchline. So you guys actually have to space out better. Otherwise, you're going to create little holes in there. And if you combine that with a jagged defensive line and someone with very, very sharp footwork like Luai, then what that means is that there's just a lot of opportunity. And that's why Luai got all those tackle busts, because there was too much space and they weren't coming up in a straight line. So, yeah, Luai was brilliant. He had that. You're right. That was. I think that might even be the best game I've ever seen him play. It'd be pretty close to it. It'd be interesting how both teams back up because obviously the, the Panthers are going to travel to Suncorp Stadium for the Broncos game. And, you know, Luai needs another big performance because he, if he just has that type of massive performance and then goes back into his shell and, you know, he's a bit of a passenger like he has been at times, mm. it's not going to mean as much. But if you can go on and string together the form, then that's a big deal. Uh, likewise for the Roosters, you know, they get to play your Dragons. And, you know, they need to bounce back and they have, you know, they're not the, playing the Panthers this week. So they've got an opportunity. Uh, the, the next game was South 20, Tiger 0. Uh, we're going to bypass that one a little bit because, you know, I thought it was solid. But, you know, Souths were expected to win. And they did. The Tigers made them work for it, which is, you know, nice for the Tigers. But they still end up with a 20-0 loss. But your, your Dragons ultimately hooks last game coaching. Took on the Cowboys. At North Queensland, the Cowboys looked like that they were getting a bit better in recent weeks, and they came in and they ended up winning forty-two to twenty-two in a very high-scoring match. It started off well for the Dragons, Marty. They scored in the third minute. Jack DeBellin went through under the sticks. They looked pumped. They all like ran around him like it was a grand final try. And I thought that their attitude was maybe in the right place for this game. It was obviously Ben Hunt's three hundredth game, which is pretty big. Um, but then the eighth minute, the Cowboys scored, and then the floodgates just opened and. It was the the game was really. It looked like it was going to be all over by the fiftieth minute. You know, the Dragons came back in and scored in the fifty fifth and sixty ninth minute, made a bit of a game of it, but then they went back and forth and just kept trading tries. You know, it's probably pretty disheartening from a, a Dragons point of view for you. I, one of the big talking points was that the the fact that they started with Hunt at hooker, and then when they needed some attack and Sullivan was off the field, he just he stayed off for the rest of the game and he barely played. He only played the first twenty minutes. So it was a bit odd, but I mean, you know, that's Hook probably knew it was one of his last games as well. So I mean, maybe that came into it. I'm not sure. And but how did how did you make the game? Because obviously, you would have been disappointed. Ben Hunt's big game, but also just another loss, but one where you conceded 42 points and lost by 20. 
Um, <clears throat> look, I mean, I didn't really care about the game. What I cared about was what they did to Sullivan. You know, I mean, one thing we do know is that um, Anthony Griffin never wanted to move Hunt to hooker. We know that hooker um, was not a position that Hunt wanted to play and that he was made to do that by the board. And so he did what his employers told him to do, but it was also clear going into this game that it was going to be his last game. And so as soon as Sullivan was sin bin for something that should never have been binned, it wasn't him. If you were going to if you were going to penalise or sin bin anyone, it should have been the fullback. He was the one that held on to him, if anyone. The cow scored three tries while Sullivan was off the field. He used that as the excuse he was looking for to go, well, let's not worry about whether we can win or lose this. Let's just celebrate Ben Hunt, my mate's 300th game. And I mean, I've, I've never seen that in football before. I've, I don't I think I've ever seen a coach turn around and just thumb their nose at the board like that before. The problem is you also thumbed the nose at the supporter base, you know, and I'm so glad he's gone. Um, yeah, the best thing for the Dragons, I think, out of that is that you know, you take the the 10 minutes out where they were a man down and the scoreline was 24-22, so it was actually really close. The Dragons are the slowest team in the NRL and have been for pretty much since the Morris boys left, to be honest. It's the real Achilles heel in our team. So you tend to find we're competitive early, but that's because we have a compressed defensive line to cover that lack of pace and teams tend to play a bit tighter early. But then as the game progresses, we start to run into problems and the answer is we can't actually cover the width of the field because we're just way too slow. So teams like the Storm often get out to an 18-0 lead against the Dragons and that's because they go wide early. That's how you beat the Dragons. So the moment we had a man down, then we were just exposed by a team that was fast and talented they didn't play very well. It was a really sort of headless, frantic game. I thought the Dragons lost the game more than the Cowboys won. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really care about the result. I was just sitting on the sideline thinking, I can't believe the coach is doing this to the future of our club. Like, I just can't believe it. So by the end of that game, I was probably the angriest I've ever been as a Dragon supporter. Um, but as I hinted to you a few days ago, that's all about to change. So this is probably the happiest I've been in 10 years as a Dragon supporter. Well, we'll talk about where to from here for the Dragons uh, after this. But I did actually think, you know, one of the funny things was Ben Hunt started at Hooker and didn't want to be there. He got two tries this early on from Hooker. You know, great balls. He actually looked really good there. So it's like, yeah, I know he doesn't want to play there. And I know he's a very good halfback and stuff, but he played very well there. He ended up with three tries from the for the game and had a good game. No errors, no penalties. But... You know, two out of those three tries were from Hooker, so I found that quite ironic as well. Yeah, well, if you look at Hook, Hook, when he was spoken about in the interview, he sort of said, oh, you know, Benny Hunt was getting worn out at Hooker, and it's like at that stage he'd made, I think, 17 tackles. Yeah, it was And it's like that that game in State of Origin where, where Ben Hook, sorry, when Ben Hunt um, scored that try to win the Origin game, he'd made 37 tackles in that game, you know, and Sullivan hadn't missed a single tackle. And Sullivan had really sparked up while he was on the field. So you, there was absolutely no justification for what he did. Um, by the time he came back on, I, I guess the game was already over. You know, Dragons aren't good enough to come back from that 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 bigger score um, board pressure. Uh, but, yeah, it was just oh, it was weird. I, I still look back and then think to myself, I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. I've never been so angry as a supporter before. Well, on the Cowboys side, I mean, Cowboys fans should be pretty happy. I think the last... I certainly think the last few weeks it's been building and then they obviously got the win against the Roosters and in Magic Round and then they've gotten a big win against the Dragons. I think that they're, they're going a lot better. 
Uh, even people like Chad Townsend haven't been good this year at all. He even managed to get a couple of tries this, this game and, and limited his areas to zero and penalties to zero. Two of his Achilles heels there as well. Yeah. Uh, so, and really everyone that you kind of expected that were firing for the Cowboys before yep. had some good touches of class and did some things, um, whether that was Talangi making a couple of breaks or uh, I thought Drinkwater had some really nice touches at times as well. Um, obviously, Felt just started scoring tries recently. He's now gone, I think he's scored like half a dozen tries in his last three games. Um, so they're starting to move along. I thought Robson was very good. He was obviously coming through the Dragons' lower ranks, and you would know Robson pretty well. He had a, he had a few line break assists himself uh, and managed to sort of spark things. He had a couple of really good runs from dummy half as well, yeah. which were really astute. Um, and it's not what they've had him doing enough this year, I don't think. Um, maybe some of that was the opposition. But you tend to think that that type of win with the performances that all those star players in the Cowboys side could have is a real springboard for them. And you'd think that they're going to keep going on and getting a bit better now. Whether they reach the heights of last year off this win, that's debatable, but they, they look like they're on the up. So that's good for the Cowboys. Um, the Eels lost to the Raiders 26 to 18. And the Raiders have now won, what, seven in a row. Uh, they're just absolutely flying and they're doing it at the right time. And we've seen this from them before. It has to be said, the Eels... Play, playing at GIS Stadium, not at Combank, where they've got a great record, and also playing without Moses is a huge concern for them. So I, I don't think that it was too out of the ordinary of what we sort of thought would happen in this game. But one of the things that was out of the ordinary, I just want to mention, we got to see a fight finally, a, a punch. Corey Horsburgh, the big horse, got angry, threw a punch. Him and Maddo went at it a little bit, and he got sin-binned. I have to say, I don't remember ever... Only one player getting sin-binned, but his team not getting penalised. I don't understand how that works, and I don't think I've ever seen that happen before where the Raiders didn't actually get penalised for that sin-bin. Yeah, well, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, the, the fight came out of nowhere, and I, I guess the referee just sort of went, well, I have my ruling in place. This fight's secondary to that, and I'm actually binning both people, so we'll just sort of call it even and move on. It kind of summed up the game in some ways. It was, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw a game where they traded penalty goals in the first five minutes to start the game. I mean, that was kind of a, quite a negative mindset. I think Eels missing Moses kind of made them play a lot tighter and play through the middle more. There's a lot of bash and barge stuff out there, and um, there was a lot of tries scored off kicks, for example. Um, there weren't mm. any line breaks scored in that game by either side. Um uh, yeah, it was pretty spiteful and aggressive. I actually really enjoyed that game, but it wasn't one for the purists. There wasn't a lot of style and sophistication out there. It was just get out there and smash each other. So it was good. That's that's a pretty Raiders game, really, especially at Geo yeah, Stadium when they want to bunk it down against one of the better that's sides. Right. And it was freezing. It was like eight degrees. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, McDonald Jones Stadium, we had the Knights host the Titans. 46-26. to 26. So hey, don't worry about your Dragons, Cowboys. They weren't the biggest scoreline in the... Uh, in the in the round, the 46-26 scoreline is a massive scoreline, and that actually marked the fifth time in a row that the Titans have put on exactly 26 points. That's incredible. Um, there was a there was a, a stat as well that if you put a dollar on that at most gambling agencies and kept turning it over to bet on them having 26 points every week for five weeks in a row, you would have got about a million bucks out of it. So yeah, that's that's how hard it is to do that. But the Titans, I think we know at the moment. As long as you can score more than 26 points, you'll beat them. 
and the Knights did that. And it was, you'd say like it was, I guess, Marty, an entertaining game without being hugely high quality, obviously. Um, you had pretty equal possession. The Titans only had 69% uh, completion rate, but they still managed to actually put 26 points on the board. The defence from either side was not good at all. And you look at the missed tackles, 32 missed tackles from the Knights, 44 missed tackles from the Titans. Great to see a heap of tries scored, uh, but that's probably the, the main thing that I think the coaches will take out of it, those missed tackles and how many points are actually put on the board. Yeah, I mean, it was an enjoyable game. That was free-flowing. Neither, neither side cared about defence. It was just all go left, go right and run. Um, I think the Knights' packs continues to play above itself in many ways. Um, but their outside backs are starting to to look good. Ponga was just electric. I mean, a bloke that all these people that were saying, oh, you know, Walsh would get the origin fullback spot were just off their face. There was no way Ponga was never was not going to be selected, and he proved that. Um, I think the Titans hit a flat spot. They played really well this year. They've been better than I expected. It was probably their worst performance of the year. Their halves were, were bad. They were off. Um, it just wasn't really their day. Um, but I, I thought both... Tyson Frizzell and um and Fafita, I think both those two guys really pushed their barrow for origin selection. Yeah, I thought they did too. And they are both in very good good form. Um Fafita I've spoken about just about every week, I feel like, is the best player on the park for the Titans, and he just keeps doing it. He's had like a month of insane football. But Caelan Ponger, yeah, it's it's really about time, isn't it? Because it was getting to a point where we're getting the halfway mark, and obviously he's had games out, but you, you've got to even just see good performances, you know, but he, he threw an, another worldly performance up there uh, as far as a star performance goes. A couple of line breaks, three tries. He's a line break try himself. He still missed six tackles, which has been an issue, but he, yeah. uh, he limited himself to just a one error, which is nice. But just the attack, and he seemed to have his confidence back. And it's really weird because you watch a couple of games back from him and you go, well, he doesn't look like he, he looks like he might be trying to stay away from the contact. He's not really running the ball confidently. He's not, he's just not making an impact. One of the games you'd swear he wasn't even playing on the field when they had the ball. And then you see this game, which isn't too far removed from that. And he looked very confident. He looked great running the ball and he looked very confident in making plays. And he made the plays that you expect a state of origin player to make. It was a, uh, Really refreshing, but you also have to question, you know, where did this come from? Are we going to get inconsistency? That's what I was thinking in my head, Marty, because you'd need him to be doing this week in, week out, not just throw a cameo out there, um, because at that point you just become a bit of a, a circus freak, right? Right, One of these guys that can throw up three or four absolutely mint quality games a year, but all the rest are very forgettable. And, and Caelan Ponga can't be that, and the Knights can't afford him to be like that. They need more of this Titans game from him. Yeah, I mean, they can't afford that from Ponga at club level, but I can almost guarantee when he pulls on that Maroon jersey, he's going to have three good games a year. It'll be those three games for Origin. I don't want to hear that as a Blues supporter. <laughs> the Sharks and the Manly Seagulls finish off the round. Uh, Sharkies, 20 to 14 winners. Uh, look, I don't think there's a huge amount to take out of this game, to be honest. I thought Hind is good again, uh, which we seem to say most weeks. And for... The Seagulls, they just they, they couldn't get it done. They didn't have a, a point on the board until the 40th minute where they got a penalty goal on half time, and they didn't score a try until the 62nd minute, where they, at which point the Sharks had finished scoring all their 20 points by the 49th. It was just one of those games where Manly were at four pines, and the scoreline seems like it was close, but the Sharks were the Manly side came late, which was admirable for them to come at the Sharks, but the Sharks already had a 20, 20 to zip lead. 
Turbo's obviously uh, not looking his best, to put it mildly. The Manly side's down on troops now. So they even had, like, Tulangi only played 50 minutes and he's got a facial fracture. He's going to be out for six weeks. They're going to end up starting Ben Trevojevic this week. Manly almost remind me a little bit of my Roosters um, in a way where they seem to be just getting these injuries starting to creep up that they can't afford to have. And even Aaron Woods, you know, they, they ended up being pushed into Aaron Woods playing 44 minutes on the weekend. He's out now too. So it's just one of those things where, you know, if Turbo actually goes down as well, which you're expecting him to any minute, they just really don't have a lot of depth at the moment. It's it's starting to show for me and it's actually starting to show in their forward pack as well. So interesting times after this Cronulla loss for the Manly Seagulls. They need to be going a lot better than what they are at the moment um, to, if they think they're going to make the eight, but they're in 12th. Yeah, I sort of, when I was sitting down at the start of the year, I, the Eagles was the team that I had the most trouble kind of predicting where they'd finish. If they were fit and firing um, and assuming the coach, because they've got a new coach, obviously, assuming that worked out, I sort of saw them possibly finishing somewhere between sixth and eighth. Um, but I could also see things not going to plan and I could I could almost see them finishing in the bottom four. Um, so as to where the Eagles are going to go, I'm not sure, but Origin... Traditionally, is a difficult time for them. They do have a tough draw. Um, yeah, they were they were okay. They just didn't start well, you know. And they normally do at Brookvale. The forwards were tough. Like they were smashing. It's a big pack, uh, but they just couldn't really get there. And the Sharks were just quite polished. The Sharks are missing Hamanueli and Talakai. Um, that they did lose a bit of go forward, and I think towards the end that's sort of the Eagles were able to kind of exploit that. McInnes had a broken hand in this too and he had, ended up playing at half yeah, the game with a broken yeah. hand. So, I mean, the, the Sharks middle. Yeah, the one thing I guess I will say is all this criticism of Travojevic, I mean, we now know it's been confirmed that he has a very high hamstring strain, right, which means he can't hit full pace. But most of what he needs to do on the field, he's capable of doing and there isn't that much of a risk that it's going to tear worse but he just can't get to full speed. And there was a, a moment in time where I think it was Nicker that went down the sideline. And, I mean, Nicker just burned Turbo. I mean, it was scary to see how much pace he'd lost. But you still look at the game and go, well, he, he, Turbo made 23 runs, 121 metres, busted a couple of tackles, got a couple of offloads. Um, you know, when you move him from fullback to the centre position for the New South Wales Blues, I think you'll find the thing that he's really lacking, which is pace, that won't be easy for the opposition to take advantage of. And you still have a bloke who's unbelievably dangerous in every other aspect of the game. So, um, you know, I think some of the criticism of Travoy, which is a little bit over the top, and I've noticed people are sort of going, off. Oh, if I choose a team for Origin, Turbo won't be in there. I absolutely guarantee you Turbo would be in my team for Origin, but he would be centre and I'd have um, Campbell Graham on the wing. Yeah, that's always been my team. Uh, I've always been over there mindset that you you have match winners and you know it limits what Trevojevic needs to do if he's not at fullback and if he's playing center and also he doesn't have to be a big centerpiece of that attack he's got better hands and better football IQ than what most centers do so that's right yeah I'd have him there still Um, but you just you want to make sure that you speak to him and that you go through the medicals with him just to make sure it's not going to be a liability as long as you're convinced of that then Look, we've had plenty of slower centres play in representative games and that have been very effective or even been stars. So I wouldn't be too concerned provided all the right things are put in place. But let's move along to the next topic, and that is Hook is finally sacked. So I know that you haven't been a Hook fan. Um, I didn't like the signing from the start. 
and I didn't think it was going to work, and that's sort of what's happened. I just I I, I made the comment actually, like Andy Raymond, who, who does great podcasts as well, and, and he's doing some great unfiltered podcasts with players and stuff. He made the comment of why why the Dragons think that an inexperienced coach would work. Maybe they need to look for experience. And I actually commented and said, look, I think the Dragons' problem is that, for me, they need to get someone with experience. They need to get someone who's a winning coach, who knows what it looks like, who can reshape a roster, reshape a team, reshape a culture, and, and get a team into finals and, and know how to win finals games. And to me, the problem is that's what they need but that's what they can't work with because for that to happen, and I've used Des Hasler as an example, for that to happen, the board and executives and senior parts of the Dragons organisation would need to cede control to a coach where he can coach and also very much control the football aspect of that of that club. And if you're not going to do that, you can't have an experienced coach to varying degrees. But then if you get a, a rookie coach in, then you are looking at a rebuild and you are looking at taking a risk because there is no certainty that a rookie coach is actually going to work any better. And a rookie coach obviously has to learn themselves how to be a head coach over a number of years most of the time. And you're even seeing with someone like Cameron Seraldo, who's, who's very highly rated and I think can be a good coach. He's not there straight away. You have to wait. And I don't know whether the Dragons as a club or as a fan base have any more waiting in them. So to me, they're in a real pickle, Marty, because, you know, you go for non-experience, the board and the executives and the club gets to run how they want and they get more of a say in it. But chances are that it, very high chance that it doesn't work and then you're in trouble again. But you go for the experience and then you're going to have friction in the actual club and the organisation. It doesn't work with them. So I, that, that's how I sort of see the coaching challenge for the Dragons. And how do you see that scenario at the moment when they're actually looking for a coach? Um, I think it's actually there's a lot of good candidates. Well, I think we're very lucky in that perspective. And I'm, um, but when I looked at the new coaching, I sort of thought, well, there's one thing that we can't have, and that is we can't have too much emphasis being placed on it being an ex-Dragons player. We've been through that so many times. We, we went through multiple coaches before Bennett came along that were ex-Dragons and they didn't work. Then we got Bennett and you sort of thought, okay, we'd learn a lesson from this. And then they went back into consecutive coaches that came through the Dragon system that didn't work. And I think that was the reason why they they went out, outside that sort of group and, and that's why they recruited Hook. And at the time I was, um, I, I wasn't sure about the I didn't really know about the appointment. I wasn't against it because I was so happy to have an external person in. Um, but there, he came with some baggage and I wasn't really sure how that would transpire and the answers didn't transpire very well. So that's the one thing we can't do. We, we just can't even consider Young and Hornby. Um, Riles I view differently because of um, what he's achieved in the clubs that he's been involved with and the fact that he coached rugby union, for example. I mean, he's just a winner in everything that he does and he's got a resume and you know, his testimonials are, come from the, the, the heaviest hitters in the league. Um, so the three things I sort of think we do need in a coach, as you said, you need someone strong enough and respected enough to just be able to take control of that team and have no board interference. And that has proven to be very difficult for multiple coach, coaches now. And part of that is because they keep they keep employing ex-players, you know. Um, you saw it work with Bennett and then you saw it not work with Price and McGregor. Uh, and let's be honest, the new coach is sort of going to have to polish a turd to a degree, um, but he needs to admit that it's his turd and the, the, the board just needs to stay out of the way. You know, so that's the first thing. The second thing is there needs to be demonstrable success. So I'm not interested in rookies. 
Um, they and I want people that have been involved in multiple clubs and successful clubs because the biggest problem with the Dragons is actually the culture. They don't have a winning culture, and that needs to change. And then the third thing I'm really looking for is a sense of modernity. You look at Hook and his use of the interchange bench. Um, he just doesn't have any idea. You look at the lack of structure and when, it, when all other teams are doing short dropouts, we're the one club that still doesn't do it very often. Like It's just so far behind. So you want someone with a, a good, strong, tactical understanding of the game and you need a bloke that the younger guys can sort of understand. You know, once you get to the 60s and 70s, like if you're a Bennett, it's a bit different. But the majority of older coaches, they do struggle a bit with the young generation. So that's why people like Fitzgibbon have been so successful. Um, Dimitri, I look at Webster at the Warriors. You know, there's some really good young up-and-coming coaches coming through through at the moment and to me the game is sort of heading down a slightly new direction and you know you can't teach an old dog new tricks so um I think as long as they get that sort of combination right and there are a few candidates around that that sort of fit that bill um and so yeah I'm, I'm very confident that we'll get um a really good coach and I even though Webster came out the other day and said it's you know three to four weeks before the decision's made that's not true that that will be announced by the middle of next week well, I also reckon that it's really important whoever whoever the coach is that they put the right people around them. Um, that's going to be a big deal. They're going to need some help. Uh, and you mentioned things like, you know, changes in in tactics, and certainly there's things like analytics that comes into that. And look, no, even the best coaches aren't elite at every single aspect or facet of coaching. You know, they put the they've got the right people in place where. Yeah, someone like Bennett, Bennett isn't into new age analytics and stuff. He'll have somebody there that can tell him numbers and analytics and things and statistics and point out some anomalies or different things to look at. And Bennett will put that into a football perspective for himself and, and look at it. The defensive, every team's got defensive and attacking coaches and stuff. You know, it, it, it's not something where you have a coach that just does everything at an elite level. You need support around them. And particularly if you've got someone who is a first time head coach, if that happens, even if it's Jason Rolls and, Rolls has obviously been around the traps a bit, like you said, and had some really good roles, assistant at the Roosters at the moment under Robinson, but he's still going to need the right people around him. Uh, so hopefully yeah. they've got that in place. I mean, Carr has, has been given the interim job at the moment. Uh, what's, what do you uh, know about Carr and, and him staying on board and how do you rate him as an assistant coach? Um, so I like Carr. He's an ex-school teacher. Um, and he's quite young. I think he's only in his sort of mid-30s, maybe 33, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, he's good. He's young. He's astute. He's modern. He's exactly what we're talking about. At the end of the day, he's only really going to be there until the end of the year. Like, there's there's no chance he's going to get the job moving forward. And um, Hook was so toxic, they just needed to move him on. So, um, yeah, I think Carl will do a pretty good job. I'd actually be really interested to see how the attack changes um, you know, is Lomax going to swap sides with Sawley, for example? Um, how they'll use Sullivan? Because Sullivan was sort of, the footage I saw, he was doing a lot of passing off the ground, which would make me think that he's going to play some time on hooker. So I don't really quite know what's going to happen this week. It'll be interesting to watch. But in terms of the people around him, which, which you're dead right, um, there's a massive restructure of the football department going ahead at the moment. And not all the positions have been announced, but we do know for sure that they're going to have a general manager of football. Um, so um, Aaron's being moved to one side, thank Christ. Um, Shane Richardson's a name that's being thrown around. Whether that happens or not, it's hard to be, I'm not really confident one way or the other, um, but he's one of the better credentialed footy managers going around. 
Um, he won premierships at what, the Rabbits and the Panthers from memory. Um, he's also got really good English connections, so he's brought a lot of players from overseas. And if you're looking to to strengthen a squad, English footy is not a bad spot to look. Um, he's in his mid-40s. Um, if, if he is the one that gets that role, I think that would be absolutely awesome because he knows how to win. Like I spoke about the culture before, this is a guy that has been hugely instrumental in building cultures on two very successful clubs now. Hey, from memory, he was the one when the Rabbits were sort of getting get kicked out kind of thing. I think he was the one that rebuilt them um, through that period. So that's sort of almost like what we're at at the moment. So um, I think he'll be a really good addition if he comes. I do think there'll be one more assistant coach. I think Wolf might be let go. Um, I think Ryan Carr will probably stay, um, and the name that's being thrown around um, is Stephen Carney, um, who, again, is another ex-NRL coach, um, which is always useful. Um, and the big change, the change that they, they urgently need to make, although you probably won't see a, a huge sort of positive out of this for maybe three years, is they're going to have a proper manager of pathway slash head of recruitment um, and I'm I'm very confident that will be Nathan Brown. Um, he's been involved in the club sort of unofficially slash officially for ever since he retired. Um, he's one of the best identifiers of talent there is. Um, incredibly popular with the younger players. Gets on very very well with the Islander players, which is crucial because there's so many good Islander footballers coming through at the moment. Um, it wasn't it was only sort of last week that Scott Scotty Fulton came on the market, and I've got a lot of uh, time for Scott Fulton. I think he's brilliant in that role. And the Dragons sort of didn't really express a lot of interest, and I think that makes makes me believe that they've got their eye on someone. I'm pretty sure it's Nathan Brown. So I'm pretty confident that we'll have a really good new coach, um, and I'm very confident that there's going to be lots of support and within that support are going to be multiple other ex-NRL co coaches um, and, and I do think they'll have the ability to sort of just do their thing and the board's going to worry more on the, the back of house that there's massive changes coming. Um, so yeah, I, I'm actually, for the first time in, I, I dropped my membership when they renewed Paul McGregor's contract and, and thousands of Dragon supporters did the same thing. We were so pissed off at this nepotism. Um, but and I said at the time, I, I actually spoke to the CEO at the time and said, "Listen, man, I'm I'm not going to rejoin now. Like this is, I've been involved this club for 30 years, and so is my old man, so is my grandpa." I said, "None of us, we're all gone, we're all out, we've had enough. Um, I'll only rejoin when you guys get serious and start treating this as a business." And I've got a suspicion that I will be renewing my membership next year. Well, that's big news. I mean, look, we've spoken about the coaching and the staffing and the organisation stuff, and obviously the changes that are going to happen there. The other thing that's going to be fascinating now that Anthony Griffin is gone is what impact is it going to have on the field? Because to me, that was the other big question mark. And we saw Teamless come out on Tuesday and a couple of the big changes were Jacob Little straight in starting at hooker. And we've also got Lomax straight back in the side as well, starting at centre. Now, interesting because I understand those moves, but at the same time too, you have a young guy like Max Fainai who him and his brother have been, you know, highly touted for a number of years now coming through. Important to develop and also be able to keep talents and also, you know, know whether they're going to be an NRL quality or not by giving them game time. And, you know, and by, I think a lot of people understand that he probably shouldn't be a starting hooker or even coming off the benches or hooker really. So that made some sense, but it does pose a question, you know, do you have a, a, a direction now that is going to focus on winning or are you going to focus on development? And you know, if you if if 
Carr does know that there is an incoming coach already, or if he does shortly, does that change? And does the board actually direct to focus on development for the year until you have that coach in place next year? How does it look on the field? Because obviously you've got over half a season left. It seemed unlikely you can make the finals. Maybe for a month or something, you might want to be competitive, but at some point you'd have to think that development comes in. And then that's going to be an issue again. And unfortunately, probably something that's going to cause more upheaval. Now, you know, obviously Hook was part of that and a catalyst for some upheaval. But another part of it is you've got someone in Ben Hunt that is already getting media coverage, which is always going to happen. There might not be any smoke at all and people will will create smoke or find it. Uh, who's obviously a halfback. And then you've got someone like Sullivan, who's a young guy that you obviously probably want to keep, especially if you end up being a, a rebuilding club for a couple of years. You've got guys like Jack Bird who have basically said they want to be in a winning team. Uh, how do you see all this coming to a head and the direction of the actual roster and also what we're going to see on the park at the moment? Hard to know without actually being a member of a playing group. As a supporter, it's pretty easy to sit on the sidelines and think you know what will happen, you know what should happen. But the truth of it is we're not actually part of the playing group. We we don't know what goes on. I've got some pretty good sources at the Dragons, obviously, but my suspicion is that they're going to come out and they will struggle um, because it's just not a very good side. And within that group, I think Ben Hunt is the person that I'm most concerned about. I'm very happy for Ben Hunt to move on. He's lost me. The things he's been saying to the media since before the season even started and his, his public support of players like McCulloch's re-signing last year. And, you know, I just can't stand the bloke. So um, for him to say at the Dragons, he needs to stop and realise that while it's not his fault, the Dragons haven't done well while he's been there. He is their main playmaker and he is their captain. Uh, and so he does actually need to accept a degree of accountability for this. And he re- he accepts no accountability for anything. He needs to sort of acknowledge if he's going to stay that he's, he's the, I think he's got another two years left from memory. Um, he's there to stabilise the Dragons. Um, he needs to understand his best position for the club moving forward is hooker. And so when Little comes on, um, he can move into a roving small forward role, which he's played very successfully at Origin level and for Australia. Um, he needs to understand that we have a generational spine coming through of Sullivan, Ammonia and Sloan, and he needs to support that. He needs to understand that he's got to transition a new captain, and I'm hopeful Toby Couchman will get that. Um, and if he's not happy with any of these things, I'd be quite happy for him to leave. You know, he's our best player. There's no doubt about that. He's a wonderful player. You know, 300 first-grade games doesn't lie. Um, but he's the worst club captain we've ever had, and his game management skills don't match his salary. So at the end of the day, he's got to work out what he wants. And if he wants to be part of the Dragons, then great. If he doesn't want to be part of the Dragons, I'm more than happy for him to move on. As for the rest of the guys, it's 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 hard to say because um, Hook had his favourites. That was one of the problems. And so Hook has been very unpopular, or so I've been told, um, with a number of the young players of the Dragons because they just felt they were never going to get a chance. And so with Hook moving on, Now they actually have a chance. The flip side of that is there's other players there that probably have been given way too many minutes for too long and their position was never called into jeopardy. So I imagine those guys are probably a little bit upset. You know, they're making money. They just want to play. They don't want any of the politics or rubbish that goes on with the whole thing. Well, guess what, guys? You've got it. And if you're upset about that, have a look at your position in the table. And if you're not happy with that, have a look at where you finished in the last four years and understand that as a playing group, you guys collectively are responsible for what's gone on. So people like Bird, I mean, I, I couldn't care less about Bird, truly. I think he's an amazingly talented player. But, you know, the drag he had so many injuries in his junior footy and the Dragons supported him through all of those injuries. 
Now, admittedly, there was a bit of enlightened self-interest there because they could see the sort of player he could become, but the dragon stuck by him. And then he started agitating about being a playmaker. He wanted to be a 5'8", he wanted to be a fullback. Bird was never going to be any of those things. And so he left the Dragons to go to the Sharks. He put together a really great season. And then after a year, he goes, no, I don't want to be here. I want to be a Bronco. So he goes off to the Broncos. He gets injured and plays barely any games in two years on, I think, $750,000 a year. And then instead of getting to the end of that contract and sort of going, well, I owe the Broncos. I've made $1.5 million and I've barely even played. He then starts agitating and the Broncos, uh, by this stage, are happy they had enough of him. They just let him go and he goes back to the Dragons and now he wants to move on to another club potentially. I mean, do you really want someone like that in your side? You know, we, we, we've spoken about culture. So when you look at the way Hunt talks to the media, if you look at the way he's white-anted certain players within our team, then if you look at people like Bird, none of these people to me fit a winning culture, certainly not in a team like the Dragons. You know, if they were to go to the Storm, and be part of a Bellamy-run team and with an amazing back of house, or if they were to be a, a creature of Politis, it would be different because those, they're so powerful, those clubs, that you just fit in and it all works really well. Um, I would suggest with Gould moving at the Dogs, you know, you'll probably see a similar thing happen to the Dogs over the next three years. But the Dragons aren't in that situation, and we need to be honest about the sort of players we want to keep. So um, will we lose some players next year? Yep, I'd say so. Am I worried about that? No, not worried about any of them. For me, and finish off on the Dragons and move on to the next topic, I think that it's interesting because those sort of players can help me be competitive. And I think that if you lose guys like Hunt, guys like Bird, you've got holes to fill. And it might take some time for the youth to come through and actually fill those holes. And at the same time too, in market, it becomes really hard, right? Because you don't have a huge amount of draw cards to say, come and play with this state of origin player or or this, you know, premiership winning coach and stuff. The recruitment's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years for the Dragons because they're going to have to both develop stars and I think they're also going to have to sign not necessarily stars, although a star would be good, but sign some very, very good players that aren't old and over the hill as well. So interesting times for the Dragons, interesting season for this one to play out and also the next couple of seasons. Good news story for the podcast. So, a couple of weeks ago, there was a big rigmarole about the Knights going on a Bali trip. And then it said, look, and it wasn't all of them, Ponga wasn't going, but it seemed to be most of them were going on this Bali trip and stuff. And those were the, that was the story. And it wasn't really hosed down very quickly by the club, I must say, which is sort of pretty bad because now that it's come out, it was actually Bradman Best by himself that went to Bali. And I have to say that I, I thought that his story coming out and saying what he was actually doing was fantastic. Good to have good news stories, but it's also one of those ones too where I was pretty critical, uh, as was resident and a Knights fan, Luke Garrity, that's on the podcast occasionally. We were chatting about it at the time. And whoever I was doing the podcast with that week was was pretty negative about it because, you know, you've just been flogged and you're going to Bali for a week off. Like, what are you doing? Um, and it didn't make any sense. But, you know, I'm happy to apologise because I jumped to that conclusion. But I have to say, we can only go off the reports and the stories that we have out there, and that was the story. But it's so, it, it's turned from a negative to such a positive. Like, Bradman Best has gone by himself to Bali, and he. I, I urge people to always have a look at the different stories and things and, and everything because this isn't something that's like Fox Sports and stuff that have said, you know, the whole team went over to Bali and things and whatever initially. 
they haven't come back and done a big story on what Bradman Best did or whatever, but Bradman Best met a, a young family over there, and in particular a young man who had a young family in a small village that was fairly impoverished and stuff, and the, the bloke was trying to build a house for his family and make it a bit better for himself and his family, and he went over there to help him, and he helped him you know, build a house in his village and stuff, and then just by his own you know, quotes just chilled out and got a new tattoo. You know, and that's that's a really good story. You know, it wasn't like he went over there on a piss up or anything. Um, the guy that he met was his about the same age as what Bradman is. Met his family and went to the village and stuff, and then decided that he wanted to help him out, and they were hugely appreciative of that. And he spent a lot of his time there. So, Marty, I, I think it's just always important. Like it does show sometimes the media going off half cocked, but it also does show too that you, you know you need to really recognise some of the positive stories in rugby league because there is some some good things that rugby league players do uh, and sometimes it goes a bit unnoticed or it just isn't as big a story as the Knights going on a piss up to Bali on their week off. Yeah, I don't actually quite understand what happened with that whole thing. I did a bit of research on it before the podcast because at the time when it was announced, like I just couldn't care less, you know. Yeah, it, it's a long season. And if a group of guys want to go to Bali for, you know, four or five days to refresh and have no training, I can see an advantage in that. And I, and, and what I certainly can see is that I don't see how someone like Phil Gould, who is a member of the media for sure, but, you know, he's also the boss of a different club. I don't see what it's got to do with him anyway. So when this whole thing came out and he made those stupid comments about, you know, you're paid to train and play and blah, 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 and then, Kent ripped in and then Hooper and Anasta, they all ripped in, you know, and I just remember at the time thinking, what's it to do with you? You know, your job is to talk about stuff in the media, I get that, but actually why are you making such a a value judgment on this situation? And then it turns out that it wasn't anything that they spoke about anyway, it was just one bloke. So I I guess for me it just shows you that there's, there's three truths in the world. There's your truth, there's my truth, and there's the real truth. And the real truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, most of the time, and look, I'm happy to say that if it was a if it was a team going off, like I am someone that, that would have been highly critical of that. I just don't think it's good preparation or anything. But you know, it, it wasn't the story anyway, and you know that's why I always try and read as much as I can on rugby league and and what's out there and stuff, and listen to people because sometimes it's it's not as it's reported. And you know, Bradman Best, well done. You know, that's that's a good time away, and it's a good social thing that he's done in um, over in Bali with some with young family that he met in a village. Moving along, listener's corner. Mm. Great questions this week. There was like three really good ones and I struggled to pick which one I wanted to do. But, Marty, if you were starting a new franchise in the NRL and you can sign any player to start that team, who's the first player you're signing? Cleary. If you're going to start a, a franchise, you've got to stop and, and, and realistically you're going to choose either a hooker, a halfback, Possibly a five eight if it was like Munster or a fullback. You know they're the three guys that get their so the four guys that get their hands on the ball the most. And I would probably be looking at kind of your halfback as being the brains trust of most teams. Now they're the people that kind of move the ball into the right positions and and all the rest of it. And you know while Nico Hines is playing amazing football at the moment, um, I think by the time he retires, Nathan Cleary would be the best halfback I've ever seen. Um, you know, he's and he's got all of the skills. He's a goal kicker, you know, he's got great leadership ability. Um, he's relatively young, but he's got enough experience now behind him to know what he needs to do. Um, and also if you get a guy like Cleary, then 
it's not going to take too long to attract other really good players into your club. You know, there's other guys that I really like. I mean, I'm a massive Cameron Murray fan. I mean, he's just such a workhorse and he's just such a gentleman, you know. He's in a game full of thugs. He's not one. He's got heaps of footy sense. You know, I'm a big fan of Harry Grant. I think there's a lot of good players around, you know, Munster. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think Cleary would be the number one person I'd go for. It's a fair call, and I understand why you go for it, and I'd consider it as well. Uh, it's a it's a good one, but for me, I've gone a different route. One of the things I agree with you on is that I want a spine player, and I'm probably going to go for a, a halfback, to be honest. Uh, fullback secondary, halfback or fullback would be my preference. And for me, I also want someone that's young because you need to have their best footy in front of them, uh, but also need that respect as well. And for me, it's Nicholas Hines. So Nico Hines, to me, I've said plenty of times, I think he's the best player in the league at the moment. And I think he's going to be the the best player um, long-term. Cleary might be right there with him. I'm not going to get into a debate with, you know, Nico versus Cleary. They're both really good picks. Um, But for me, I just, Hines, the other thing I love about Hines is that he's played so many different positions. He's also, you know, one of the good things with Cleary is you do want a winner. You want someone who has been a winner, who knows how to win and Cleary does. Hines has come through that Melbourne system and seen all of that as well, and he's come into a Sharks system and and sort of made it his own as well. So he's got a little bit of that in there. I just also love the character, and that's the other big thing that comes into it. You know, if you've got a top-shelf player, but you've got top-shelf character, then that's that's the right combo. And part of that's leadership and how he is on the field, and you can see the other guys follow him, but part of it as well is off the field, He's just such a fantastic guy to have in your club. And all the social stuff that he does, all the club stuff, how he makes supporters feel, how he makes the the team feel, the club feel, he's just the whole package, you know? And it's just like if you could build in a lab the perfect human being to be a footballer with all the criteria and the talent, to me it's it's Nico Hines. And you're getting him at a young age um, that hasn't even hit his mid-20s yet. So, you know... It's uh, it's a great pick for Cleary. I love that pick as well. That might have been my secondary pick. Um, I can't go past Hines just for the all the combination of everything, like I said. And I do think that uh, he's the best player at the moment. I, it'll be a travesty if he's not in the State of Origin series. So hopefully he is there. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I guess the only, because Hines would have been my second choice, by the way. Um, for everything you've said, the thing, Hines is my favourite player in the game. And as you point out, um. You know, he's just so amazing off-field. He's just wonderful, you know. So uh, I, I love him for that, plus his hair. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to my spray of the week. International Rugby League. So it has come out that the Rugby League World Cup to be held in 2025 that was meant to be in France is no longer in France. So the French organisers and the committee have said that they're going to pull out because they could not guarantee financial viability of the event. Is there any sport in the world that is meant to have their global jewel, their World Cup, that normally you have host nations fight over this stuff? And you got one here that actually went, oh, look, no, actually, we don't want it. You you can't give the thing away. And it's not just that France has throwing the World Cup away when they've won it. Um, it is everything around that and in, in International Rugby League. You know, there is an International Rugby League Federation board. 
and they run International Rugby League. And I have to ask myself, you know, this all came about face to me where initially I was looking at France and what's happening here and then worrying about the World Cup. And then it's like, what is International Rugby League doing? Like at the moment, they're just doing nothing and things just seem to be getting worse. And I remember a time maybe a decade ago where it was on the up a little bit, but it was one of those things where you saw the NRL at the time and even for the last 20 years, you've seen the NRL talk about how growing the game internationally is really important and to do that, you need international matches and different things and whatever. And for some reason, and it doesn't get the media coverage that I think that it needs to, it's kind of petered out, Marty, and it's actually gotten worse and we have less test matches. Don't even get me started about test matches because they're now called senior international matches. They're not called test matches anymore. If you go to the International Rugby League website, they'll, they'll give you a big explanation as to why it's not a test match anymore. But what you'll also see, if you have a look at recent international results and fixtures, there's been one, and it was Serbia beating Greece 40-6. to six. Growing in the game, you know, they're, they're talking about Qatar coming to the rescue of the World Cup and stuff right now. But the other thing, the easy thing, and the thing that International Rugby League board has spoken about too is you know just put it in australia or something australia and new zealand cannot carry international rugby league and it's also not the job of the nrl to be carrying international rugby league there is a rugby league international rugby league federation that should be doing all of this and i have to keep asking myself what are they doing one of the things that really irks me too is that andrew abdo and peter vlandes are both on the board and they are whilst it's not the nrl's responsibility international rugby league growth and everything obviously we have a responsibility at our position and the best competition in the world right marty to actually do something for international rugby league where we can and if we're sitting on the board there's a definite responsibility we've gone from a rep round just you know obviously covid came in but before that we had a great round of footy marty you had the origin week you had the weekend where you had um, teams like samoa teams like fiji Papua new guinea all these different teams playing across the weekend and there was no NRL and that was great and actually gave us international fixtures. Uh, you used to have a tri-nation series back in the day where you had you know, three nations, Australia, New Zealand, England, all battling it out in international rugby league. We used to have a lot more international rugby league games as well and lower tier fixtures and results that we could see. COVID obviously came in and put a spanner in the works, but I'm sorry, we can't have COVID as an excuse anymore. There needs to be more of a focus on international rugby league. There's got to be more focus on growing the game. And, and France has been around about a top four, top five nation in rugby league for a long time up until the emergence of Tonga and stuff. Like, And they're, they're a, one of our bigger rugby league nations in the world, Marty. And they're just saying, no, we don't want the World Cup. Like, it, it seems to have gotten worse over the last 30 years, not better. Yeah, but if you think about it, when we were kids, there was... New Zealand, which was a very poor rugby league um, nation, it was they were driven by rugby union. There was England and there were France, and both of those teams were very strong. Like France actually used to be very good. Any of the younger people listening to this podcast, they won't even remember those years, you know. Um, but the Northern Hemisphere was actually stronger than Southern Hemisphere when it came to rugby league. But bit by bit, that started to change and. The reality is that at the moment, the Southern Hemisphere, that's, we are the lifeblood of rugby league and unfortunately we're going to always be that way. So the good news is, and, and the NRL has been, I think, wonderful at growing this, 
Um, and, and Australia will have to take the lead forever. Um, so unfortunately, IRL, you can almost forget about it. IRL will just be driven by Australia and it will be rubber stamped by that organisation. So um, New Zealand's become a fantastic rugby league nation now. If you look at the rise of Tonga, Samoa, uh, Fiji, and who's the fourth one? Oh, Papua New Guinea. Um, they don't have the infrastructure to stage big kind of events or anything, but they're putting amazingly good teams on the field. And any of those teams would absolutely trounce France. France has become France. France has been taken over by rugby union. You know, yeah, and you have to look at the amount of money and the corporate support for rugby union over there. France is going to be a lesser nation now. Forever, I don't. I don't know what you need to do to grow rugby league in France. Um, and again, as you say, I mean, at the end of the day, Australia can try to help out, but we're not responsible for that. Um, and so, I think you just you'll find that it's changed now. It's it's really a game driven by the Southern Hemisphere, um, and we now have six very good teams in the Southern Hemisphere. And then you've got England, and they're going to be the top seven for the foreseeable future. And then France will come in at number eight. And then as for whether teams like Lebanon and these other sort of lesser nations, Wales can ever rise up, I, I, I doubt it. You know, it's unfortunate. That's always been the weakness of rugby league compared to rugby union is that rugby union is an international game. Obviously, soccer is the international game. Rugby league fundamentally is, is really an Australian game now. It's far, far more popular in Australia than it is in any other country in the world and will always be that way. Um, as, for, as for France pulling out, I, I don't know. I kind of wonder whether... We got a little bit PC about this whole thing because if you're going to host a World Cup, because it's expensive for the host nation to put on, right, the reason why you're doing it is because you're hoping to get the money back through tourism and, and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, you'd sort of hope France would help want to grow a game, but at the end of the day, you know, they've got so many competing sports. You know, rugby league has to be up there in flashing lights and it's just not. Um, but when I sort of looked at the World Cup format, one thing that I hadn't realised if you were just flying men's team over there to play the Rugby League World Cup, it would be a lot easier to run. It would be a hell of a lot cheaper and it would be quite manageable. But actually, the Rugby League Cup has four formats. It has the men's game, it has the women's game, it has the youth game, and it has the wheelchair um, game. So if you're flying a team over there, you're actually flying four separate teams across. And so when you sort of quantify that out and multiply it out, that becomes a very, very expensive exercise. So that's one question I would ask to the Rugby League World Cup, as much as we want to make sure that we grow the women's game and it's doing really well, it's it's, it's actually awesome to watch. Um, you know, and as much as we want the kids to come through, because I'm, I'm interested in that, that's where the future, um, you know, Australian players come from. And as, as much as we want to have a wheelchair competition, and, and it is awesome to watch, it's, it's so tough. These guys actually smash each other. It's awesome. You've got to ask yourself the question, have we gone a little bit too hard too soon and in the process created a scenario where there are only two nations in the world that can afford to host that larger competition, and that is Australia and New Zealand? And so I would suspect that the IRL shot themselves in the foot with this. I think they wanted to jump a little bit on board a bit too early to try to grow all these other things at the same time. And in the process, they kind of forgot one thing, and that is that at the moment, men's rugby league is where all the money comes from and all the rest of it in time, hopefully will gain some form of parity, but we're nowhere near that at the moment. And to place that in perspective for you, I mean, I watch every NRL game there is. I watch bits and pieces of the women from time to time. Um, I'll watch a tiny bit of wheelchair because I, I just cannot get over how good athletes these guys are. 
And occasionally I'll watch a jersey flag game if there's a player that I think might one day come into the Dragons. But the reality is out of all of the games I watch, probably 99% of everything is NRL men's first grade. You know, so if people like me, a rugby league fanatic, aren't actually interested enough in some of the other stuff to really sort of tune in and watch it, well, it's going to be very hard to get people that don't have that fanaticism of rugby league to actually want to sort of go across. I mean, how do you get sponsors on board? You know, I, I, so I think that's part of what IRL needs to sit down and, and figure out is, you know, where, where do they actually focus? Because to grow the international game, if you sort of spread your, your, yourself a bit too wide, um, it's very, very easy to actually just lose the core fact of where does the money come from? Yeah, it, like it's a fair point. I'm going to disagree a little bit on it, though, um, because to me, even with the NRL, I'll, I'll even say that with the NRL, the NRL needs to, earns enough money as a as a business, which, you know, you've mentioned, where they can actually put money into things like grassroots, growing the game, and that includes women's or disability sports and stuff. And they do do that, and they need to do that. International Rugby League's the same. They've got money, and they need to put money into it as well. And I would say to you, like, you're right as far as the drop-off in France and the drop-off in some parts of Europe and, and other stages and stuff. But that's that's surely International Rugby League's fault, right? Because you've already mentioned, you know, 30 years ago, France was extremely strong. And what has happened? You know, rugby union has gotten a stronghold. How did that happen? Isn't that the International Rugby League Federation's responsibility? It is. Like, maybe it's happened because we haven't actually done enough over the last few decades to stop it eroding away to the point where you're probably right. Like, it's probably, you're not going to come back from that now. And then at the same token, like, I agree with you. Like, it is, you know, certainly the South Pacific is where the stronghold is now and you've got the emergence of teams like Tonga and Samoa and stuff. But, you know, is that, I don't want to say selfish, but that has a benefit to the NRL. You know, the NRL as a competition has a benefit, certainly a self-interest in teams like Tonga and Samoa and stuff emerging, going well and all that sort of thing. Uh, and to me, you know, that's it's good that we're fostering those teams and whatever, but it used to be really a lot more about the global game, the international game, and I think that the ball's been dropped a little bit, pun half intended there, Marty, but it's, it, I just think the International Rugby League, it's called the International Rugby League. You know, you, you've got to be focused on the international game. I would think that they've put pressure, I would hope they put pressure on the NRL. I mean, we'll never get back to the day when, when me and you were growing up where you had kangaroo tours through Britain and, and all this other stuff and internationals all the time. The Anzac test wasn't that long ago as well. But you've got to have some of it and we just have to have, I think, a bit more focus. And if you've got an international rugby league committee, you know, it's it, surely they've got some responsibility to actually get the game back up and grow it because if you just... You, you're talking from a business perspective. You can't just have a business plan to say, well, we're just going to leave it and just let it continue to erode away. It's, I think maybe, do you think this is maybe the kick that they need to actually pay attention? France pulling out, maybe they need to focus more on Europe and maybe the NRL might need to look a bit more out of their own backyard if they're actually on the board with Abdo and Landis. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, you have to bear in mind, I mean, you've, we've had a global financial crisis. You've got COVID. You know, a lot of countries are running massive deficits. A lot of the corporate sponsorships that are around are just nowhere near what they once were. And globally, it's such a congested sporting market that everybody's fighting for the same dollars. And so you could look at France and go, well, what happened to you in rugby league? 
Well, I would counter that by saying, have a look at Australia. What's happened to rugby union? You know, I mean, I used to go to watch the Randwick game as a kid. Uh, I was on a Saturday and, you know, there would be a crowd of 12,000 people to watch Randwick play, um, you know, whoever they were playing. You know, nowadays you go to a, a ground like that, you're lucky to get 1,500 people there. And if you go and see a team like, you know, Manly play or the Bears, for, oh, not for the Bears, but um, the North Sydney team, you know, and I used to I used to run the, the contract at North Sydney Oval for a long time and I used to turn up and cater for a crowd and the crowd would be lucky to hit 700 people. You know, at international level, rugby union is going really well. But if you actually look at what happens in the Super 10 that turned into 12, that turned into 18, that's now back to whatever it is, and then if you drill down further into club level, it's falling apart. So I, I would sort of say, yeah, it is the International Rugby League's responsibility, but the International Rugby League is is really driven almost entirely by Australia now. So to grow the league, you have to do things which uh, Australia is doing. I mean, if you look at the talk about trying to bring in a Pacifica side, for example, that would be wonderful for International Rugby League, but it's driven by Australia. If you look at taking the game over to Vegas next year, um, that would be wonderful for International Rugby League, but it's being driven by Australia. Um, there are markets around. Like I, I, I never really saw a possibility that America would be interested in rugby league. But then I was chatting to an American mate of mine you know, a couple of years back now, and he said, you've got to understand, Marty, that by the time you buy the helmet and the shoulder pads and the uniforms and the shoes and all the rest of it, if you want to get your kid into um, to gridiron, it costs you thousands and thousands of dollars. And there's a lot of people in America that don't have that sort of money. And that's one of the reasons why soccer has grown so well, because it's cheap. Your kids can afford to play it. Well, you can afford to play rugby league because all you need is a bloody mouth guard some shitty boots and some, you know, some shorts and off you run. So, um, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying about International Rugby League. Um, but speaking as someone with an economics background, I'm not surprised it's fallen in a hole. And I think the timing of this World Cup combined with the location of the World Cup combined with the fact that they probably just tried to grow it a bit too much too soon has led us into this situation. So, yeah, there are some lessons that IRL can learn from this, but... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not truly surprised it's happened. I'm not surprised it's happened. I'm disappointed that it's happened. Is probably the yeah, for sure um, the better word to use because I mean, at the end of the day, like France put their hand up to have it as well, and they've now pulled out of it. And well, I'm going to France in 2025 for a champagne tour. So how good would it have been to go champagne and rugby league? Doesn't get better. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not. It's not I know it's not a common. Combination, but I don't drink beer. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm really disappointed as well to have a, a a wonderful trip to France where you've got amazing food, amazing wine, amazing women, and a rugby league world cup. And I definitely would have gone to every game, and I would men's, women's, the the kids, and and the wheelchair footy. I would have gone and seen all of it. You know, it would have been unreal. So I'm disappointed too, but there's a lot of work to do in rugby league to grow it internationally. And I'm, in my heart, I'm just not convinced it's ever really going to grow beyond a certain point. The, the the question is to sort of ascertain what that point is and start targeting that. And once you hit that, then start to come up with a strategic plan for the next layers above that. And I don't really know quite how you go about that. Uh, it's a, certainly a much bigger discussion, a much bigger project. I'll probably just finish by saying I think that um, we are you know, very much starting from scratch and we didn't need to. I think that if we continued on a little bit smarter and a bit better from you know 30 odd years ago, then we wouldn't be in the position that we are now. And you know we are we have made it to the point that do we even get back to what it was? Maybe we don't. 
but maybe some of that is apathy and not the right management required from the International Rugby League Federation as well. But to, in summary, though, you know, I have to say I do want to see more International Rugby League on the calendar. And yeah, same. Uh, I don't know why things like the ANZAC tests um, had to be thrown away. Um, certainly, the ANZAC test can happen the week after ANZAC round, and it, it fits pretty perfectly, right? It's normally around around ten. Um, yep. more than a third of the way through the season, about 40% mark. Good time to have a rest. Um, there's no reason why you can't have the international round then. Like, why can't the NRL foster and push forward with two guys on the board that are very senior and listened to on the International Rugby League board foster a rep round where we have the ENZAC test back? And during that round, you also have Samoa, Tonga, France, England come across, you know, different things. Well, I'm very confident. I'm very confident that that will happen. Um, that's an example of something which is eminently achievable. Um, I think this year was a little bit tricky because with the Dolphins coming in and the extra buy rounds and the lengthening of the season, and also at that stage, don't forget the um, the players were agitating for the season's too long, we play too much, blah, blah, blah. So I think there are a few factors that may be combined to make a decision of hey, it's just too hard this year um but i would hope that that maybe next year or the year after i would hope that it gets back to that if they if they got plans to bring it more back next year or something that's great but there has to be some plans there and has to be some focus here and again it's really smart management can get around a lot of this stuff you know like if the players are agitating because the season's too long and stuff okay well you know what we're going to do boys we're going to give you a week off you know we're going to have a rep round where there is no games so you're whinging about needing to play 27 rounds this year, although you've got buys all the time, well, we're going to give you another buy. So that gives you more rest. Certainly Australia as well probably could give a little bit more as far as, you know, it, it might be our pre-season where, you know, other countries it isn't. But, you know, so what? You know, we're, we're Australia. We're meant to be the number one ranked world team in International Rugby League. Give a little bit, you know, have a have an exhibition game in the preseason or something. There's a lot of different things that I think that we could do. I just don't see any talk about it. And I, I think the International Rugby League has not enough visibility and we do not see enough international matches. And I think it's a shame and it's culminated and sort of come front of mind because we need somewhere to put the Rugby League World Cup, which should be the biggest international thing that Rugby League has. And it doesn't look like it right now. Legend rewind this week. Let's finish up on a Dragons legend, an Illawarra legend as well, uh, Brad Mackay. He was a lock forward who I think probably doesn't get, I'll say I, I think that he doesn't get remembered as often as other league legends because he was always in the shadow of Brad Clyde. Brad Clyde to me is possibly the greatest lock forward of all time. We've done a legend rewind spotlight on him before. He was phenomenal and it just happened that their careers intersected. Um, and I think that probably hurt Brad McKay a little bit, but played for your Dragons on debut, 87, um, local junior too, the Brighton Seagulls Club. And it was quite strange for him. He he did the Dragons from 87 to 94, scored 23 tries in 117 games. And then the Western Reds came in and he went across and played a season for them. And then he ended up back at the Illawarra Steelers when they weren't part of the Dragons yet for the 96 to 98 seasons, played 56 games for eight tries. And then he ended up at St. George Illawarra when the teams both merged. So there's, you won't see someone more full circle in their career between what the Dragons became uh, and then what you were with Brad McKay, right? Started with the Dragons, went to the Steelers, both clubs merged, ended up playing for both of them. There's very few players that are in that boat, right? There was very few players that played for the Dragons in the 80s 
played for the Steelers standalone and then played for the Dragons when they had to merge. Yeah, so Brad was great. He was a very complete player. One of the things you often get asked is, you know, you know, how, how would Mick Cronin compare to, you know, um, Inglis? Or, you know, how would Rod Reddy compare to, say, Gordon Tallis compare to, you know, someone like an Angus Crichton? And it is really difficult to compare players back in eras. Um, but Brad Mackay was one of those guys that was totally suited to the modern game. You know, in an era where most players weren't very fit, you know, often had other jobs, he was incredibly fit. He was a defensive juggernaut. Um, he had a pretty good running game and he had some footwork before the line. He passed well. He was a very, very clever footballer. Um, you look at a player like Brad Mackay, and I mean, I would love to have a player like that in the current Dragons team. He's, he's a, he, was a, he was ahead of his time, Brad Mackay. Yeah, what you say is right. I mean, uh, you mentioned Clyde. I mean, Clyde was another player that was very ahead of his time, and he was an absolutely amazing lot forward. So, um, yeah, he was, he's um, Brad Mackay. If I had to choose a all-time favourite Dragons team, um, Brad Mackay would definitely be my lock forward. Yeah, I used to love him. And those those teams that had him in with uh, Rod Wishard, um, they were fantastic for the Steelers. It was great. Um, Illawarra used to have And Paul McGregor. And Paul McGregor, yeah, that's right. But Illawarra had They'll a really good side in the 90s. They had some really they good did. players to watch. Um, and Brad McClive was... It was a massive player. nursery. Yeah, it was. Um, and, I mean, that's why you know, I think a lot of us thought that the merger would have been really successful, and it was initially anyway. You had some good success, and obviously we are where we are now, but to stick on Clyde... He did manage some games for Australia as well, 12 appearances. Um, and he also managed 17 appearances for New South Wales State of Origin. So he did still get the rep jumpers, even though he obviously had Clyde there along with some other really good players. And that's probably a testament to how good he was. He was very durable as well. Um, played a lot of games at footy and you know, 217 games in his club career. But he also went over and played, I think, a couple of seasons for or one season for Bradford. Um, in the English Super League as well, and you know, in the in the age of looking at people making three hundred games as being big, you know, back in those days, if you've got someone, you know, a lot of players went over to England and used to finish their careers there as well when they were still, you know, decent. Now, you know, players retire and go and have a beer and stuff and relax. So, you know, to play two hundred seventeen games in the NRL level and then go play another thirty games over in England, you know, two hundred fifty odd games. It's pretty big, and then you're putting the representative games on top. It that was pretty good back then, and especially for the type of role he played, he made a lot of tackles. Brad uh, Brad McKay, he was a really good worker, and like you said, he kind of had a bit of everything, didn't he? It's almost like you know you, you can't compare eras of players, but you know who comes to mind recently, Marty, that we see play mm-hmm. someone like Cam Murray. You know, different yeah, in a, yeah, different in the modern way that a lock is. But a lot of the things that you'd say that Patrick I had, you know, the footwork before the line, the fitness, the, the tackling ability, the, you know, the IQ and stuff for a lock forward, it, it's very similar, isn't it? Like you use very similar adjectives and comparisons when you're talking about those two. Yeah, definitely. I think Brad McKay's still got a role to play in the club too because he, um, he still lives in the Illawarra. Um, and he's a fireman by trade. And in case he hasn't noticed, there's a bloody big fire to put out at the Dragons. So with any luck, we'll see him again. <laughs> Good stat on him to finish off too. One of only four players to get a Clive Churchill medal in the losing side. The 1993 mm. grand final where the Broncos won versus the Dragons. And Brad McClay actually got the uh, Clive Churchill. So that was a massive achievement. 
Do you remember that one? Because I, I thought that he fully deserved it. I thought he was immense in that one. But obviously, there's always controversy when uh, a losing team ends up with a Clive Churchill medal. Yeah, I don't know why you need to keep bringing up all of these grand finals that the Dragons lost. <laughs> I wasn't alive <laughs> in the 60s, mate. There was you a, bring me on the podcast there. every time the Roosters play the Dragons. <laughs> now you need to talk about all the grand final losses. You'll probably win Come this on, week. Give us a break. You'll, you'll probably get the win. You're hurting week, me. Right? Well, this week actually could be quite interesting. I'm I'm a little bit confident this week. I told you last, I, mean, I told you before the Anzac game that this would be a really tight game and the Dragons got rolled by one point, which is pretty much what happens between those teams. There's two points either way. Um, historically, the Dragons have, have not done well outside of the Anzac round. Like They do lift for that game for whatever reason. So historically, we should get an absolute shellacking. Um, but looking at the back line that's being rolled out by the Roosters this week, uh, I don't know. I just think we might be a smoky. Yeah, it's uh, it's always hard because you have a team that loses a coach, gets a new one in, gets a new players from reserve grade that you know got dropped. To they're always fairly motivated, so it'll be very interesting. That'll do the podcast though. So thanks very much for jumping on, Marty. Good luck with this week. I, I'd say mm. I hope that you win, but I hope that you don't. And. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was great chat, chatting footy and chatting dragons with you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Mark. And I'll, I'll no doubt I'll be on the podcast next year when I'll, when we play the Roosters again. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Anyone that wants to listen or download the podcast, you can jump on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or pretty much everywhere. You can also follow us on Twitter, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars, all one word. And certainly jump on our partner, Picklebet, picklebet.com. Use your referral code. All stars or one word when you sign up today and they'll take great care of you as one of our listeners. In the meantime, we're kicking off with round 12 footy tonight. Cannot wait. Enjoy the round of footy. We'll be back next Tuesday recording a Supercoach episode next Thursday releasing a Talking Footy episode. Enjoy the round. Can't wait to talk more rugby league next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on. Get paid.